This week, we discuss harm reduction policies, synthetic designer drugs, and cannabis Christmas carols. Coming up right here, right now, on Critical Grass. Forget it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Putra Markelo, I'm from Belarus. I'm the communication director for Legolet Belarus Civic Education and Advocacy Campaign. No, that wasn't some Scandinavian DJ or Baltic electronica you just heard. That was the group Shuma out of Minsk, the capital of Belarus which, coincidentally, is the home of this week's special guest, Mr. Piotr Markilo, who is the communications director of the Legalize Belarus Civic Education and Advocacy Campaign. The campaign is aimed at civic education about psychoactive substances and advocacy for the decriminalization of small amounts of controlled drugs in Belarus. Piotr used to study theoretical physics at the Belarusian State University, but was expelled twice, in connection with his political views. Now, when I say special guest, I genuinely mean that, because first and foremost, Piotr is a very active and courageous organizer who, in his early 20s, has already campaigned for the reform of cannabis laws in various forms, including traveling to various European countries and speaking about his organization and its activities. How many 20-year-olds can put that on their curriculum vitae? And secondly... Piotr has already been arrested and detained several times for expressing his views on drugs and cannabis. Now, you don't meet many cannabis activists from Belarus, which, in case you haven't heard, is widely regarded as Europe's last dictatorship with very strict anti-drug laws. And Piotr is not afraid to put his freedom on the line to fight for something he deeply believes in. Also, as recently as just over a week ago, Legalized Belarus was celebrating the anniversary of its founding in an abandoned bunker where they were raided by the special forces who decided to bring assault weapons as well as some four-legged friends to the party. No drugs were found, though 27 people were arrested and subsequently released a few hours later. However, six of them were fined the equivalent of two euros for public drunkenness. I'm sure the Belarusian SWAT team put all that money towards something very nice for themselves making their whole effort totally worth it. I met with Piotr at the Hemp Parade in Berlin, where he gave a speech at the end of the march, and I asked him about the beginnings of Legalize Belarus and his advocacy. Belarusian drug law is the harshest in Europe. Like, um, half of the whole number of prisoners are uh, drug prisoners, uh, the people that are convicted under legal article that regulates drugs. And uh, most of these people are young people, and uh, they are put in prison like for 5, for 8, for 12 years, 
So this is like a mass incarceration going on in Belarus. And they are uh, treated not as normal uh, criminal prisoners. They are treated even worse. So they are forced to wear special stripes like, like Jews in Nazi camps. And basically our campaign started a year ago uh, when we organized a Liberty bus for a group of students from Belarus uh, to here to Berlin uh, to have parade. So Piotr's actions were motivated out of solidarity with people who were put in jail for either using or possessing an illegal substance, some of whom are there for very small amounts of cannabis. What I found most disturbing in what he said, however, is the fact that the prison authorities in Belarus have a program of humiliation for drug offenders. As if that's what these people needed most, in addition to the lovely conditions they face while incarcerated. As Piotr noted, this type of punishment was also popular in Nazi Germany, where public humiliation of criminals and social undesirables was quite commonplace and encouraged by the state. A little ironic, considering we were recording the interview in Berlin. Another place that springs to mind as far as humiliating prisoners goes is Arizona, home to America's most beloved sweetheart convicted criminal sheriff, Joe Arpaio who loved humiliating his inmates and was a fan of concentration camps so much that he set up his own little tent city for his inmates in the desert. What a hero. So Belarus is not alone in backwards and inhumane prison policies. But I have to admire Piotr and his crew for sticking up for their fellow citizens, which, in an authoritarian place like Belarus, can seem downright scary. I was curious as to what early reactions were to not just his campaign, but to his organization and their mission in general. From the beginning of our campaign, we encountered uh, lots of uh, challenges. So, Belarus is an authoritarian country, and uh, we're not actually allowed to organize pickets, we're not allowed to speak openly about the issue. Um, so, when we tried uh, to organize a first rally, like a first Belarusian parade for, for the legalization, it was uh, 25th of December, like um, Christmas, and we made uh, cannabis stars. So in Belarus, we have a tradition. Uh, so on Christmas, people go on, uh, on streets and uh, singing songs about uh, Christ and about Christmas. Uh, and they uh, use uh, uh, masks and uh, different uh, clothing. And uh, we kind of reworked this uh, tradition and uh, made uh, cannabis stars. And we went out singing uh, songs uh, about cannabis. So we, we, we were not protesting, we were not kind of demanding uh, uh, policy reform or, or criticizing uh, government. We were just singing songs about uh, cannabis. And after that, four of us, uh, four of us were, uh, were fined uh, 1,000 euro in total. Uh, so it is really hard to kind of uh, push this, this issue uh, in, in public sphere. So a light-hearted awareness campaign, especially around the Christmas holidays, can land you a hefty fine of up to a thousand euros, which is no small amount and can be hard on anyone's pocketbook, particularly if you're a student. Either the Belarusian authorities take Christmas that seriously, or they dislike cannabis that much. Which, if true, is ironic considering the historical significance of the cannabis plant in Belarus. As recently as the 1950s, when Belarus was part of the Soviet Union, cannabis propaganda posters were everywhere, and you could still find Soviet pins and badges emblazoned with the title Master Cannabis Farmer. Before that, for hundreds of years, people in the area used cannabis to make butter and soap, 
and also used it in different forms for pain management, treating different skin conditions, animal feed, anti-parasite treatment in farm animals, just to name a few. But the country has not been immune to anti-cannabis propaganda either, and changing people's attitudes is no easy feat. I asked Piotr how he thinks the issue should be approached in Belarus. The problem we are working on is, is, is not really a simple one. It's a, it's a very difficult and complex. Uh, and, uh, and we kind of divide the problem into two uh, spheres. One is connected with the government, with the drug policy. Uh, and that's why we do advocacy. We advocate for public reform. We collect signatures and stuff like that. And the other part is working with, with society. Uh, is changing people's opinion. Um, and this is the hardest part, but that is what can lead to long-term uh, change in the society, and that can ground that uh, policy reform. According to Piotr, it's public opinion that needs to change first. If you have the majority of society on your side, then implementing change on a higher level becomes that much easier. But could it work under the authoritarian regime of Lukashenko? I wanted to know what's currently allowed in the former Soviet Republic. Uh, cannabis was used in industry, like hemp, it was used to produce uh, uh, a tissue, right? Uh, it was used to produce uh, oil, it was used to produce uh, clothing. But now uh, even technical cannabis, hemp, is, is illegal in Belarus. Mm -hmm. So uh, all products from cannabis that you can buy in Belarus that uh, do not contain uh, THC or CBD are imported from abroad. Um, so even like technical cannabis is, is prohibited. And if, uh, the, if, if the police find uh, like one leaf of uh, hemp in your herbarium, in your like album, uh, you, can, you can face like five years in prison. And this is what happens actually. So pretty much every form of cannabis, even a dried leaf in your collection of plant specimens, is illegal and can lend you some jail time. Unless you, of course, import industrial hemp products from abroad. Then somehow it stops being the devil's crop. Are there any other exceptions to this strange law? Seeds are legal, but because they do not contain uh, any prohibited substance. And the law does not differentiate uh, drugs by amount or type. So if uh, so, they can catch you with like 0.001 gram of marijuana, and this, this, that would be enough to to put you in prison for five years or eight years. Drugs are bad, okay? All drugs except for alcohol and tobacco, of course. The Belarusian government makes no distinction between cannabis, cocaine, heroin, or PCP. All are lumped together as quote-unquote drugs, and that's a big no-no. Yet, the country's health ministry reports that nearly 2% of its 9.5 million citizens were either diagnosed as alcoholics or as suffering from alcohol-related psychosis in 2016. The Interior Ministry, on the other hand, has reported that some 25% of all crimes in Belarus are committed by intoxicated individuals. In cases of serious crimes, for example, robbery and murder, that number goes up to 80%. Alcohol also remains one of the major reasons for the country's high suicide rate. The government has admitted that alcoholism is a problem and has taken measures to curb consumption somewhat. For example, by banning the production of Planck, which is a cheap, low-quality wine made of fruit. But the policies have been inconsistent at best. 
Despite evidence that cannabis can help people treat addictions to various substances by, for example, alleviating pain or stimulating appetite and enhancing mood, all properties that can be indispensable to those in the throes of alcohol recovery, prohibition remains in place. However, this has given rise to another drug-related problem, namely the synthetic kind. In like 2011, uh, synthetic, lots of synthetic cannabinoids uh, began to be produced in China and, and uh, to be imported in Belarus and other countries. And uh, by, by 2014, it, it, like the situation was really kind of uh, critical, I know, because uh, people are, are not educated about drugs. They don't know what is cannabis, what is synthetic cannabinoids. They don't, want, uh, they don't know what uh, they are using. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, these spices uh, like uh, katsu, right? Mm -hmm. The synthetic cannabinoids uh, were sold uh, legally in uh, in uh, you know kiosks in small sh in, in small shops, uh, and and uh, the government started to to ban them. And uh, in uh, in 1914, uh, uh, the president signed a decree, uh, uh, kind of to strengthen the law regarding drugs. And after that. Uh, the situation uh, has become uh, even worse. Uh, so th this kind of uh, severe policy started in 2014. We now have a situation born out of ignorance. Young people in Belarus, much like in other countries with strict cannabis prohibition, including parts of the United States, were curious to try this forbidden fruit they kept hearing about. Thanks to a legal loophole, opportunists set up shop and started distributing synthetic designer drugs with names such as Spice or K2. Because they weren't actual cannabis, they were allowed to be distributed. However, they also didn't undergo any lab testing, and their effects on the human body were completely unknown. Since there is no quality control in the preparation and packaging of these substances, their overall safety ultimately is a wild guess. Party at your own peril, but hey, at least you're not breaking the law. Since coming onto the market, numerous lethal overdoses have been documented worldwide and in 2010, the Polish government moved to shut down shops distributing these designer drugs and ban the substances entirely, though they still can be purchased with relative ease. And what took their place, might you ask? Well, none other than alcohol and tobacco shops. Because a few dozen deaths from these strange drugs is horrible, but several hundred thousand deaths annually is totally cool because, you know, tradition and tax money. The reason these designer drugs came into existence in the first place is prohibition itself. You cannot stop people from wanting to take substances, be they legal or illegal. An opportunist will set up shop wherever they smell a bit of money. But banning them won't make them go away, and if you don't have a better alternative to offer in their place, people will find something on their own, and, as is the case with synthetic drugs, with lethal results. I wanted to ask Piotr what he thinks would be a better approach compared to the one currently in Belarus. Well, young people wear uh, clothes with cannabis leaves. They, they like this kind of symbol, they like how it looks. Uh, but when it comes to expressing their opinion on public policy, they are normally strictly against uh, drugs. They are saying, okay, we are against drugs, and that is why we are for prohibition. But it doesn't work like that. Uh, because if you're against drugs, you actually should support uh, harm reduction policies. 
because that is the way you can decrease social harm uh, caused by drugs. I believe the core of the problem is that people are unaware of, of drugs. They don't have information about different psychoactive substances. They don't know how they uh, uh, affect your, your body. And they don't uh, know uh, how to decrease the harm from using drugs. Uh, and they don't know how to react in life-threatening situations caused by drugs. And that creates lots of problems. Uh, so w when government kind of um, creates this over-deterring, uh, when uh, they create like a negative, strictly negative image of drugs, that creates a big fear among society. And that uh, doesn't lead to anything good. Piotr seems to be in favor of a policy that's been in place in Portugal since 2001. Under this harm reduction strategy, people in Portugal caught with illegal substances receive treatment in the form of aftercare and social reintegration, as opposed to jail sentences and fines. And how has this affected the country? For starters, there's been an increased uptake of treatment, a reduction in new HIV diagnoses, a reduction in drug-related deaths, no increase in drug use observed among adults, a decline in drug use among adolescents and quote-unquote problematic users, a decrease in drug-related criminal justice workloads, meaning the police can focus on things like violent crime, decreased street value of most illicit drugs, and a decreased homicide rate. So social problems related to drugs obviously differ from country to country, but prohibiting substances seems to have the opposite effect, and Belarus could learn a thing or two from a country like Portugal, which is quite similar in terms of population size. But change very rarely comes from those at the top. In most cases, it usually comes from below when people put pressure on the ruling class. Given that Belarus is a stubborn, authoritarian country, it doesn't seem like those that govern are willing to listen or care about what its citizens have to say. But let's say that even in an authoritarian country like Belarus, the citizens become educated on cannabis and start demanding change. Who would they have to go through to see their demands become reality? Ministry of Internal Affairs is the biggest, uh, biggest actually governmental organization. And if we, if you consider uh, Belarusian government as a criminal group, as a group of criminals, so uh, or as a group of criminal organization, uh, in this way we can uh, consider Ministry of Internal Affairs as the biggest and the most powerful institutions of institution of that kind. And uh, they are very interested in keeping this. Uh, uh, policy because they get funding on on, on this on this work uh, and they get salary increases with every new case they open um, so they are very uh, interested in keeping this uh, this policy and actually most of other uh, governmental institutions that are somehow connected to the problem they are supporting a softening of the law so the government is mostly concerned with keeping the gravy train rolling no surprise there but it is a little surprising to hear that there are people in the Belarusian government that favor some easing of the laws, albeit quite small. Given the nature of the Lukashenko regime, however, it doesn't seem like anything will change soon, most certainly not on its own. Could legalization efforts in the US, Canada, and Western Europe potentially influence cannabis policy in Belarus? Belarus actually is stuck like... Uh... 50 years uh, behind kind of uh, United States or other Westernized countries. And uh, it looks like uh, if the regime is, is not changed, we won't kind of uh, go further really quickly. So it, uh, every new change is, is passed with uh, lots of difficulties, with lots of uh, protests from the officials. 
So no matter what happens elsewhere, it seems Belarus is going to keep doing what it's doing, the will of its citizens or outside pressure be damned. But let's not forget it's taken a state like California 20 years since passing medical cannabis to enact full legalization for all adults. And this in the quote-unquote land of the free. Until the passage of medical cannabis in 1996, people in California also had to supply themselves through the black market. I asked what that situation currently looks like in Belarus. You won't find dealers on the streets. Uh, you can uh, buy cannabis from your friends, but uh, like I don't know anyone who, who sells uh, cannabis in Belarus uh, like directly. Uh, but you can buy it through Darknet, you can buy it through Tor. The cost is around, uh, it's, it, it's, very, it's very expensive, it's around 25 bucks for, for a gram. And uh, so you buy bitcoins, you transfer them to their uh, wallet, then you get uh, like a picture with a map where you can go and find a hidden uh, package of cannabis. Once again, we see prohibition giving rise to a black market, with the internet being the preferred platform. Now, where have we seen this before? So someone in Belarus is profiting off of illegal cannabis sales. Do we have any idea who this might be? There are evidences that officials from the Ministry of Internal Affairs actually uh, run this um, illegal shops, uh, this illegal markets that uh, uh, sell drugs. The most vocal opponent to drugs is allegedly profiting off the sale of the very substance they're trying to keep illegal. Again, this seems incredibly familiar. If the government is complicit in this, and the citizens can see through their bullshit, why doesn't someone call them out? In a authoritarian government, uh, authorities don't listen to their citizens. They just don't care because they care uh, about uh, being in power and getting more and more money from, from, from the people. So they don't listen. Uh, like, uh, around two months ago, they've blocked our website, Legalized BY for uh, drug propaganda mm. and we asked why where did you find this propaganda and they showed us like 10 pictures from our actions and from our uh, educational events educational lectures uh, where we just uh, pose for, for for the like general photo mm -hmm. so and they they said okay this is drug propaganda but this were just kind of journalistic uh, you know pictures ah yes that's why Authoritarian regimes don't care what others think, and that includes the press, who they believe it's perfectly normal to jail, beat, arrest, and censor. But isn't there an opposition somewhere? Surely there must be some politician in Minsk who has similar views on cannabis? So politicians are afraid of talking about this issue. They are turning away because they don't want to lose their supporters. But they, they don't need supporters if you don't have elections in Belarus. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk about opposition kind of politicians. Uh, they are afraid of openly uh, expressing their position on this on this topic. Actually, lots of people support us, but not publicly. So they they, they come to me and say, "Okay, I mean, I, you, you're doing a great job, and this is very important." But we don't uh, we won't say it in public uh, because this is how authoritarian society works. That is quite possibly the most discouraging and depressing thing to hear from an official, especially if it's something you care so deeply about. It's like saying, yes, you're right, I agree with you, I support you, but despite all the evidence you present, we just can't do it. Because it might upset the higher-ups. Maybe in the next life. So things don't look very bright in Belarus, at least while the current regime is in power. 
But no regime lasts forever, and even some of the most brutal ones occasionally throw their citizens a bone to keep them at bay. It does make me wonder, however, how organizations like Legalize Belarus keep fighting and don't give up. Is there a future for them in their own country? I believe, I mean, I, uh, I hope and I believe, because uh, if, if, I, if, I, if I didn't have uh, hope, I, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do this campaign. Uh, so for now, we, we at least uh, demand decriminalization of small amounts of the controlled substances. So we want uh, government to stop uh, punish drug users, because uh, it, it just destroys their lives. And uh, just like 15,000 of young people that are not criminals, that are not making any bad for any, anybody else. They just used some, some drugs, they're put in prison on 10 years, and after 10 years in prison, in prison it is almost impossible to get back to normal life. Uh, it, is, it is impossible to reintegrate into society. And uh, the government didn't, the, don't, the government don't provide any psychological help for, for these people. And uh, also there is no uh, non-governmental institutions uh, that do this. So, baby steps, in other words. You can't have everything at once. The very least they could do is stop the jailing and punishing of people for putting a substance into their own bodies. We have seen time and time again that prohibition of any kind doesn't do what it claims to do, specifically to stop people from taking certain drugs. If anything, it has the opposite effect. If the authorities were actually concerned about public health, they would take the approach of Portugal and, as of December of 2017, Norway, which seemingly is also interested in public health and taking the market out of the hands of criminals. And their respective law enforcement bodies seem to agree. I asked what law enforcement in Belarus thinks of that approach and if there is anything the humble citizen in Belarus could do to affect change. The law is one problem. Uh, the other problem is uh, law enforcement. Uh, so in Belarus, uh, police is uh, interested to, to open more of these cases. So they ask, uh, ask people they catch with some uh, small amount of drugs to help them to open more cases. So they are, are actually provoking people to commit crimes. They ask people to uh, ask their friends to buy some stuff for them. And then they, instead of catching one person, they, they, they have like five or ten new cases opened. So what, what can uh, average citizen do for, for the movement, right? So we are try, uh, what we are focusing on is, is drug education. We try to promote drug education in, uh, online and in local communities. So if, if they're interested, they can, they can basically share this information. They can also organize uh, like lectures and uh, meetings in their cities, in their places to talk about this, uh, to, to talk about um, different psychiatric substances, about their effects, uh, to talk about uh, addictions and, uh, and drug policies. And they can also sign our petition. <laughs> Lots of stuff to do, actually. Despite the bleak prospects for even decriminalization under the current regime in Belarus, you can still help affect change in small ways. As the saying goes, little by little does the trick, even though it may seem like you're not making any progress whatsoever. Educate yourselves, and don't be afraid to talk to others and to educate them. That's the best hope for enacting any change anywhere. So where do we go if we want to get more information on Legalize Belarus? So we have a website, legalizebelarus.org, uh, where we post news about what we do, uh, where we put information about the problem. They can also donate uh, via Bitcoin. And with that, we say farewell to this week's guest.
Gott Markila. Okay, thank you so much for uh, for being here today. Keep fighting the good fight, and I, I wish you uh, all the best for your organization in Belarus. Maybe in the future someday, you get to have a hemp parade in the heart of Minsk. <laughs> yeah, I so, hope. yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> Now, I have to admit, I really admired Piotr's energy and optimism, as it's not often you meet an activist from an authoritarian country. Not only did he decide to speak out against that regime, he's doing so on a topic that's still taboo in many other parts of the world, including places in the West. There were moments throughout the interview where I noticed a sense of despair, or at the very least frustration, in Piotr's reactions to my questions. And in those moments, I reminded myself of how relatively easy people have it in the West, and how giant of a challenge activists in Belarus have. And that's just dealing with free speech, not to mention any kind of drug policy reform. So again, I'd like to pay respect to Piotr and the people of legalized Belarus for their courage in the face of an unforgiving and harsh government, and I encourage you to lend your support in any way you can, be it donations via Bitcoin, liking their Facebook page, or even just sending a friendly hello to let them know they aren't alone in this battle. Remember kids, solidarity is our strength. That does it for episode number five. Only five more to go before we hit double figures. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share with others by tweeting, texting, messaging, and any other way you can. Tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram. My name is Bogdan. I hope to see you next time. Da pa bacenia. <laughs>